0: Now, for the benefit of those who have not been with us, we're on chapter two with the concatenated macrochiasm of that chapter. And you will remember that we have pointed out the acrostic feature here in chapter two, which shows on the left-hand side of your outline, the Hebrew alphabet in acrostic style then the chiastic structure with the a b c d etc to d prime c prime b prime a prime the mirror pattern of the language and of the poem the concatenation refers to the chaining together of words or phrases from one verse to the next You'll notice that Lord in verse 1 is concatenated or connected or crocheted to Lord in verse 2. When Jacob in verse 2 is concatenated or crocheted to Jacob in verse 3. And so on throughout this 22 verse masterpiece. With the exception of verse 12 in which there is no concatenation. And I will address that issue when we reach that verse that brings you up to date on the outline as it's presented to you in the form of the poem in terms of the genius not only of the poet narrator jeremiah but also that genius under the inspiration of the holy spirit of god all right we're looking at verse eight as we resume our way through chapter two But I want you to hold your finger there in verse 8 and turn back to 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 13. 2 Kings 21, verse 13. In that chapter, you will notice... The author writes, in the words of the Lord, I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Now keep your finger there and go back to verse 8 of Lamentations 2. The Lord determined to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion, He has stretched out a line. He has not restrained his hand from destroying, and he has caused rampart and wall to lament. They have languished together. You notice that phrase, stretched out a line, which occurs in both of those passages. Now, that 2 Kings 21, 13 passage is in the context of the reign of King Manasseh. Manasseh is given that word from the Lord in verse 13 by an unnamed prophet. It's interesting that there are a number of these unnamed prophetic individuals in the book of Kings. But this one delivers this message about the line of Samaria during the reign of the longest sitting king in Israel or Judah, namely Manasseh who reigned for 55 years from 697 to 642 B.C. Manasseh is also the grandfather of King Josiah, who is the contemporary of Jeremiah and is the last good king of the southern kingdom of Judah who sits upon the throne in Jerusalem. Now, to Manasseh, God says he will extend the line of Samaria over the nation of Judah. What does he mean by the line of Samaria? Terry? Israel, Israel? The separation. Yes, the northern kingdom. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. So what does it mean God's going to stretch his line or had stretched his line out over Israel in Samaria? You're yielding to Nancy. Yes. Yes. Okay, Nancy? He's going to divide. He's going to divide. No, it's already been divided. This is long after the division of the kingdom. The division of the kingdom is after Solomon. Ben? Would it have something to do with the fact that the plumber of the outer both of them are measuring devices for whether something is true? The but of the Yeah, he already, this is past tense, he stretched it out. You stretch out the line to measure whether they were in line or out, right? Are they in line? No, they are not in line. So, what's he referring to? What's God referring to here? No, he's referring to the destruction of the nation. He's referring to the destruction of Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel by whom? By whom? Not the Babylonians, by the Assyrians. What year? 722 B.C. All right, so God had judged the northern kingdom and wiped out that nation through the invasion of the Assyrians I mean, the Syrians, and the Hebrew word for line in that Second 2 Kings 21.13. The Hebrew word for prophecy of Second Kings 21 is the same word for lying in the sixth century B.C. poetry. It's the same word that appears in Lamentations 2.8. He has stretched out the line, kav. God in 586 B.C. has stretched out the line of destruction over the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, through the Babylonian invasions as he had stretched out the line over Samaria and the nation of Israel by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. What the prophets revealed of God's measuring line during the evil days of Manasseh declare his, that is God's, determination, we might paraphrase God's decree, the intent of his will to, in fact, stretch out that line of destruction and measure the nation for, shall we say, its own coffin. God's will is determined and his decree is set in the century before its fulfillment. Remember, Manasseh is reigning almost a hundred years before the final fall of Jerusalem in 586. He predestines Jerusalem and Judah to the same destruction to which he had predestined Samaria and Israel. Jerusalem as Samaria was out of line. And God swallowed them up with destruction. Now, a measuring line is generally an instrument of construction, a measuring line to construct a true wall or a true angle. Here, as one commentator observes, this line is a line of deconstruction. As the walls of Jerusalem fall in rank upon rank of rubble, And ruin. The concatenated wall from verse seven is duplicated here in verse eight, the second time with a note of personification. Here in verse eight, the personification of the wall is that it laments. It speaks as a person. The walls of Jerusalem cry and weep and groan and wail. Effective poetic device. Verse 9. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Also, her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The camera now focuses in verse 9 on what is happening on the ground or on the earth. As the New American Standard translates verse 11, the Hebrew word can be translated either way. You'll notice the concatenation on your outline. Verses 9, 10, and 11 feature the ground level events. Ground level events and they bind the objective description of the gates, verse 9, and the elders, verse 10, and the subjective heart of the poet, verse 11. We're coming down to ground level. The defenses of Jerusalem have been devastated. Her huge, impressive gates, or bars, as they are called in the parallel line. Bars and gates are parallel, epategetical of one another. The in, erstwhile invincible barriers to incursion are brought down to the ground. Downward. Downward. Three times in these three verses. Downward, 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 ever downward, the vector of Judah's humiliation and destruction. Downward. With no vertical intervention. No action from Upward, no action from above. The dust of the ground is the level of Jerusalem's identity. What is truly barred here, what is truly barred in verse 9, it's not the gates of Jerusalem, per se, the horizontal vector, but the gates of heaven the divine Jerusalem, the vertical vector. God himself has shut the gates of his divine intervention against a stubborn, wicked, and evil nation and its capital city. He has brought the nation down to destruction by yielding it to its own evil disposition and wicked inclination. You wish to destroy yourself, O nation, says the Lord, I give you what you wish. Down to the ground you will come, because that's the level at which you live. Your kings and princes, your rulers, break the law. And they do so with impunity. They routinely thumb their nose at the common law, And the constitutional law of the nation. Your rulers shall be scattered among the nations who despise them for the fools they so obviously are. For they are fools indeed. And your cultural prophets. Your cultural prophets, prognosticators of the mores and acceptable viewpoints of the day. They seek no vision from the Lord. They are, in fact, serial liars promoting falsehood after falsehood and creating narrative hoax after narrative hoax, advancing traitorous and treacherous alliances with the kingdom of darkness because they hate the Lord, they hate the Lord God and his Christ. Rulers, prophets, priests, priests, the religious scions of the day, all slaves of pagan tyranny all slaves of paganism and its tyranny, reducing the nation to that paganism in kind. They destroy the national defenses. They have made the law a wax nose for their own agendas. They have kissed up to their national enemies, and they have promoted a vision the very opposite of the will of God, for they will not have God in their thinking, planning, deciding, Or meditating. They will not. We have watched this movie before. Paganism destroying a nation. 722 BC and the instant replay 586 BC. Totalitarian paganism eviscerates a nation and every level of her identification and organization governmental, legal, religious, cultural, media, family, personal, every level and aspect paganized, enslaved by the arch-pagan Satan himself as he dances his death dance over the nation, once the capital, over the culture, over the death wish. That is the root of all pagan ideology. All modern liberalism lives and basks in the light of a death wish. All you have to do is look at the abortion mills. They live under the cloud of a death wish. And that is what they wish, in fact, for all mankind. And they want to control it as well. That is the ultimate arrogance of paganism in its totalitarian, bare-faced, and naked grasp for power over other human beings. Judah and Jerusalem tasted the bitter fruits of her subjection to hellish paganism in 586 B.C. Remember, she had sold out to pagan cults. She had sold out to pagan alliances. She had sold out to pagan customs. She had sold out to heathenism. And having done so, she would not listen to the voice of God through her prophets or through his spokesman. She would not. And so God left her to her fate. He did not intervene. She sought ground level, and he shut the gates of heaven. God gave her up to the pagan worldview she had so lovingly and wantonly embraced. And what she awoke to on that fateful day in late July 586 B.C. was paganism's inevitable legacy and sorrow and bitter lamentation as Jeremiah so poetically, so prophetically portrays here in the lines of his eka, eka, alas, alas, twice over, chapter 1, 1, chapter 2, 1. And how much of paganism in this early 21st century do we have to look out in the course of history and remember how it brings death and tears and sorrow, and bitter lamentations. It is ever the same, regardless of the century. Or do you think there was anything else behind Stalin's communism, or behind Hitler's Nazism, or behind the genocides in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War? Do you think there was anything else behind any of that, including Mao Zedong's cultural revelation. That is nothing other than crass paganism with its terrible death wish. Murder upon murder upon murder. All in the name of brute power. Verse 10. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground. They are silent. They have thrown dust on their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. We are reminded here of the accoutrements of mourning, dust or ashes to the head, sackcloth to the body, faces bow down to the ground upon which they sit. That it is the elders who sit here, the poet specifies those legal or judicial personalities who occupied the entrance to the gates of a city in Judah. Notice verse 9. There they render judgment. They dispute the law. They give their opinions on matters of legal jurisprudence. As in most judicial confrontations, these encounters were frequently raucous. But these legal experts are silent in verse 10. The judgment is not pronounced by their mouths. No, they are mute because the judgment of God has been pronounced on them. They sit at the gate where they were charged by God to judge righteous judgment. But instead, they twisted and perverted the law to their own self-interests and the interests of the power brokers of Judah and Jerusalem. They joined the tyrants of the government, the tyrants of the religious establishment, the tyrants of the dominant culture, and where they permitted the city to go to destruction At the gate of the city, there they and their lackeys suborned justice. At that place, they sit with the garments of death wrapped around them like a shroud; the ashes of death covering their shameful heads, the dust of death creeping in upon their hands, feet, bodies like the shroud of a burial cloth. They have wrapped themselves in their legal garments. And their legal garments speak death, death, and more death. Is this sackcloth and ashes the mourning of penitence? Is this sackcloth and ashes the display of godly sorrow for calamities that their sins have brought, their judicial sins have brought? Their sins have brought upon the nation, their capital city, their temple edifice. Are these the marks of true contrition and humility, humbling before Almighty God? Or is this the form of sorrow, the external display of the rights of sorrow? They have reaped what they sowed, the destruction of the law they promoted at the gates in the courts, that destruction has crushed them with silence. So volatile their revisionist mouths have chattered at the gate, legal mumbo-jumbo, so much twisting of the law to their own agendas, so much legal blather, now silent, not a peep. The great justices of the 6th century B.C. have nothing to say about the law or justice or what is morally right. Because they never believed in the authority of the law. They never believed in equitable justice. They never believed that there was a moral right. All morality was relative to their and their crony's self-interest. And in their silence, God's law sits in justice upon them. In their silence, the righteousness of God sits upon them. In their silence, God's moral purity and holiness sits upon them, leaving them speechless, dumbfounded, mute, with nothing to say except their own guilty silence. Indeed, guilty silence with no remorse, only the external external form of rites of death and mourning, but no cry from the heart. No cry from the heart goes up from these legal experts. Oh, Lord, we corrupted your law and perverted your righteousness because we were amoral barristers. Oh, Lord, in dust and ashes, we repent. We repent, we clothe ourselves with repentance before your just and awful face. Oh, Lord, we, the elders of the law, repent in genuine contrition, but we hear no such cry. We hear no such cry. In 586, there is no such cry. The representatives of the judiciary do not cry to God, whom they don't believe in anyway. We hear nothing from them but silence, the silence of certain deaths and their destruction. Verse 11, my eyes fail because of tears, my spirit is greatly troubled, my heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people when little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city. Now you will notice a change here in the beginning of this verse. Or do you notice it? You notice a change in the pronoun. What do you see? My, My. correct. From the third person to the first person, personal, personal pronoun. From her and he to my and I. The shift in the voice of the speaker. The shift in voice is dramatically emphasized by the break in concatenation. You will notice that verse 11 and 12 contain a duplicate parallelism, but verse 12 interrupts the seamless concatenation. There is no word in verse 11 that reappears in verse I'm suggesting that this variation in structure is also drawing attention to the variation in voice. Who then is speaking in verse 11? Who is the my and I voice in verse 11? It is Jeremiah. And who is pleading in verse 13? Who is pleading with the I I, I, it is Jeremiah. That second person pronoun appeal to daughter Zion will continue down to verse 19. So that verses 11 through 19 are the voice of the poet prophet Jeremiah. The my, I person in verses 11 to 19 is Jeremiah. Jeremiah. but will you please notice carefully what he has done. He has personalized his own voice in the narrative of this poetic drama for the first time. He has interjected himself personally into the narrative with the I, me, my pronoun. He has identified himself personally in the sorrowful story, making this story his own. He is himself personally participating in the narrative drama of the storied calamity. His I is the I of self-identification. His my is the my of personal participation. He is taking the drama to himself, to his own person, to his I, me, my identity. He is making the suffering his own. Even drawing it down upon his own persona by identification, Participation, joining his I am to it. Uniting the narrative to his own personal story. In other words, do you see it? Jeremiah is embodying the judgment upon the nation and city in his own person. Jeremiah is uniting himself, taking to himself the grief and sorrow of Judah and Jerusalem under the just wrath of God. Your I is my eye, he is saying. Your my is my my, he is saying. You and I are joined in an inseparable reciprocal relationship. Chiasm. You and I are joined in an inseparable and insuperable concatenation. We are saying concatenated with the very same vocabulary which mirrors myself in you and you in myself. The two distinct voices of chapter 1 are now merging into the voice of reciprocal relationship. A relationship which is increasingly as we progress through the second chapter more and more and more intimate mimetic identical United Joined indelibly into one voice. Notice in addition to this identification, this participation, this narrative union motif. Notice, this is a union motif, participation motif, identification. This is not an abstraction. This is not Jeremiah standing out on the periphery. This is Jeremiah participating, uniting himself, joining himself to Notice how Jeremiah mirrors the first person pronouns of chapter 1. In that first chapter, as we learned, the I, me, my pronouns were from the voice of the city. The personal cries and grief of Lady Jerusalem. But here in chapter 2, the voice using the I, me, my pronouns is the voice of the prophet-poet. Jeremiah's voice is mirroring Lady Jerusalem's voice. Jeremiah's voice is entering in vicariously to Lady Jerusalem's voice. Jeremiah's voice is bearing the poignancy, the plangency, the threnody of the daughter of Zion. He mirrors her voice because he is taking her place in the drama. He mirrors her voice because he is taking her place in the drama. He echoes her sorrows because he is bearing her sorrows. He duplicates her vocabulary because he duplicates her narrative. This concatenated chiasm is not incidental. It's not a mere formal pattern of structure. This is a theological device he is tying himself in chain-link fashion to the whole narrative of the city as he follows line by line through this poem of the second chapter with one remarkable break you are looking you are looking not only at an artist you are looking at a profound theological drama. You are looking, in fact, at an intrusionary, eschatological drama. That's what you are looking at when you're looking at that outline in front of you. Two voices coming together as one. Two stories coming together as one. Two persons coming together as one. You see the marvelous thing which is occurring in this revelatory poetic narrative. This is divine revelation. This is a revelatory poetic narrative. God is showing you this. He is revealing this to you so that you may understand the depth and the riches of his person. You may understand the treasures and the riches of his story. You may look with your eyes to the two voices who become as one. Two voices united in identification and participation. The one incarnated, may I say it? Is the word too strong? The one voice incarnated in the other. The personalized city's grief incarnated in the poet prophet and, and the person of the poet prophet's grief incarnated in the city. Is it too strong to use that word? Ah, the depths of the riches. No, not mere foreshadowing, embodiment, anticipatory embodiment sub-eschatological embodiment with a life of no less. The life of no less than the Son of God revealed in the life of Jeremiah and the life of the eschatological Jerusalem transcending the life of the earthly Jerusalem. And all this, all this through the tears of two prophet poets who wept, two, two prophet poets who wept over that city, wept over that city in order that they might weep no more, that those with them in that eschatological city might sorrow and weep no more. Yes, you are in the presence of poetic genius. You are in the presence of prophetic, prophetic poetic genius. But you are also in the presence of the one whose life itself is to be a mirror of the life of the Son of God. Which is why many in Judea, thought that Jesus of Nazareth was Jeremiah, come back from the dead. Matthew 16:18, Verse 12. They say to their mothers, Where is grain and wine? They faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. This is the unconcatenated line, verse 12, as you see from your outline. This unconcatenated line also underscores the shift in narrative voice. Objective Jeremiah shifts to subjective Jeremiah. Talking in the third person, pronoun about Jerusalem and the tragedy of the destruction of the city shifts to I, me, my, subjective participation in Jerusalem. The absent concatenation then in this verse may arise from the tragic and singular poignancy of the description, starving, dying children. And the verse breaks the thread of hooked verses, concatenated verses, because it is so pathetically unique. Not only marking the shift in person, which is inaugurated in verse 11, but the spectacle of tragedy of starving infants. Whose heart does not go out? Whose heart does not touched? by images of starving children to infants dying on their mother's breasts. Would to God the same hearts would go out to fetuses in their mother's wombs. Fetuses about to be crushed, sucked out, or expelled to death in abortion mills. In both cases, sin was chosen. Sin was indulged. Sin conceived and gestated. Sin finally produced its issue Death, death. For a fleeting moment, we hear here another voice in the poem. It is the faint, feeble voice of starvation. It is the plaintive voice of hunger. Where is grain and wine, they ask, they gasp. They whisper, where? But there is no answer. There is no answer because no answer is part of the silence of approaching starvation, famine, and death. The breasts that once gave them life now give them nothing, no nourishment, nothing to drink. Their life is poured out in death on the breasts of those who suckled them. One commentator remarks, mothers with empty hands, no grain or wine. Mothers with empty breasts, no milk. Tragic reversal. Tragic reversal. And you will notice further the duplication which frames the verse. In the Hebrew text, the first word in the verse is mothers. And the last word in the verse is mothers. But notice as well the stunning reversal between mothers at first and mothers at the last. The children are alive at the beginning of the verse. At the end of the verse, they are dead and die Sandwiched between the mothers are children who are alive and then dead. We've reached the time of our break. If you have any questions before you stretch your legs, I'll be glad to address them. Otherwise, Enjoy your stretch. We reached verse 13. How shall I admonish you? To what shall I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what shall I liken you as I comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? The change of speaker is emphatically upon us here in verse 13. Though we have alluded to it before, as we've examined verse 11, it is forcefully enunciated with the I person, personal pronoun, reiterated here no less than four times. The personalized I of the city has been borrowed by the poet. Again, he is mirroring her plaintive voice, even substituting for her by affirming her justly deserved misery descriptively while identifying entering into it existentially. The key line in this verse is his offering of himself as comforter. He offers himself as comforter when no other will comfort and relieve her. With the the emphatic, emphatic eyes, there are four emphatic interrogatives. How, to what, twice over, and who. How, to what, two times, and who. Each of the interrogatives is a rhetorical question. The expected, obvious answer, how shall I admonish you I have tried, but you have refused. See the prophecy of the book of Jeremiah. To what shall I compare you? To what shall I liken you? To the glorious bride of the Lord, but you play the harlot. To the holy assembly of God's presence, but you prefer the gathering of idols, metal images, fertility statues, sacrifices offered through murder. See the prophecy of the book of Jeremiah. Who can heal you? God alone and only the Lord God. But you prefer the scars and wounds and wasting sickness of your sins. The enemy of your God. How vast is this ruin. This malaise. This death by starvation. This devastation by sword and spear and fire. It is as vast as the sea, as deep and fathomless as the ocean. It is as immense as the boundless western sea stretching to the horizon beyond Israel into the erstwhile endless space. Shall the one who decreed the ruin heal the ruin? Shall the one who has left you comfortless grant you comfort? Shall the one who has brought it justly to your deserved suffering, shall he take suffering in your place? Will Jeremiah seek to bear the suffering and agony of the mimetic eye by participating with her in that agony, in that suffering? in that comfortless ruin. He may seek to do so. Yes, this humble prophet may seek to do so, but he will fail. He will fail, even as his prophetic words failed to turn Judah and Jerusalem from her freely chosen sin death, and destruction. So his poetic narrative words fail to heal. So his poetic narrative words fail to comfort, to reverse the ruin, to effect the admonition of love and grace. Jeremiah fails. He fails. Though he may mirror the remedy. Jeremiah does not avail, though he anticipates the solution. This calamity will require an eternal I, an infinite person, an everlasting prophet sufferer. For these these are eternal consequences of infinite offenses with unending death at the eschatological hour, the last hour, the eschatological hour of Jerusalem and Judah, 586 BC. There is an eternal I for this calamity. There is an infinite person for this suffering. There is an everlasting prophet for this warning. There is an eschatological sufferer for these eschatological woes and miseries and sorrows and lamentations. There is one who is God and man to heal and comfort a people bent on destruction, death, and eternal, yea, eschatological judgment. There is one. There is. The eschatological Jeremiah. A man of sorrows, who weeps over the city of sin. A man whom the world passes by as a nothing but he is everything to believing sinners in this present evil age. And he has identified with us Emmanuel-like so that we may participate in him and in his eschatological glory. Verse 14, your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions, and they have not exposed your iniquity so as to restore you from captivity, but they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. The concatenation hooks resume in this verse. You will notice from your outline, it is the to you or for you. The Hebrew expression is exactly alike. It is the phrase lock. The to you or for you Hebrew expressions not only concatenated a repetition, tying or crocheting verses 13 and 14 together, but it is a duplicate reiteration in both verses. That is, the word to you or for you appears twice in verse 13, and that word to you or for you appears twice again in verse 14. It is as if to reinforce it doubly, twice over. In verse 13, To what shall I compare you? Or what shall I compare literally to you? Hebrew, Locke. And to what shall I liken? Or literally, shall, what shall I liken to you? Locke? In verse 14, Your prophets have seen for you. Loch. And then an even more exact duplication in that same verse 14, They have seen for you, Locke. In verse 14, something else is duplicated. It is a Hebrew word for see. And you will note one other duplication in this 14th verse. The word false. The word false describing the visions and oracles of the prophetic frauds. It is the same Hebrew word shah. The chiastic mirror reciprocation is also evident in the I voice of the poet prophet as he owns or takes possession of the imagery of verses 1 to 10. Notice in verse 13 how he echoes verse 10, J and J prime on your outline. The daughter of Zion in verse 13 is reciprocated or mirrored in the daughter of Zion in verse 10. In verse 10, she sits amongst the sounds of silence with no word of comfort. In verse 13, the poet prophet himself attempts to speak words of comfort to her. Now, in verse 14, he once again mirrors or echoes the chiastic reciprocal line of verse 9, the I and I prime on your outline. The prophets of verse 9, false, fraudulent, counterfeit, phony, bogus, the sham prophets of verse 9 are duplicated in verse 14. Here, Jeremiah adds to his indictment, not only are they false prophets, they are fools parading, misleading, and deceptive theological opinions, claiming the Lord as the source of their visions and oracles, They, in fact, have no relationship with the Lord except to use his name for their perverse agendas. Jeremiah is expanding here after the fact on his biting indictment of these charlatans before the fruits of the deceit brought blood, pain, death, and starvation upon the culture. Remember Jeremiah's clash with Hananiah. Jeremiah's clash with a false prophet, Hananiah, in 593 B.C., four years after the second siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 597. Remember that clash. Hananiah, the false prophet who predicted that within two years, God would break the yoke of the king of Babylon over Judah and Jerusalem. The story is in Jeremiah chapter 28. And the result of Hananiah's lying mouth which he claimed was the word of God. Remember, his lying mouth he claimed was the word of God. Hananiah died because he lied. Hananiah died because he lied. The book of the prophet Jeremiah is replete with indictments of this gaggle of buffoons, these simpering liars. He calls them full of greed and avarice fleecing the people for their own salaries, chapter 6, verse 13. He reveals that they practice divination or chanting of magical rites and the like of hocus-pocus, pocus-hocus and puffs. You have heard the infallible word of the Lord, chapter 14, verse 14. He says they are polluted adulterers who have filled up the supposed precincts of the Lord with their sexual wickedness. Chapter 23, verses 10 to 11, they even prophesy in the name of Baal, so shameless are they with the sacred name of Yahweh Adonai. Chapter 23, verse 13, and Jeremiah warns the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem, do not listen to the words of these prophets who are prophesying to you. Chapter 23, verse 16, for they speak from their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. Jeremiah warned them not to listen to these false prophets. But, of course, they would not. Now, here in Lamentations, the poet-prophet Jeremiah surveys the damage these bogus seers have produced. Not just the carnage of a ravished and decimated nation and city. Note well, these fake prophets bear part of the blame for the deaths and blood and destruction around their own corpses. Not just the carnage... But rather than reprove the sins of Judah and call the nation to repentance, these fraudulent messengers of God indulged the sins of the nation. They engaged in the sins of the nation, even as they claimed to be the voice of God. They claimed to be the voice of God and promoted injustice. They claimed to be the voice of God and promoted false testimony. They claimed to be the voice of God and promoted crass misrepresentation of the truth. They claimed to be the voice of God and promoted imprisonment and persecution of the true messengers of God, all the while defrauding and maligning Jeremiah, Uriah, and the other remnant true prophets of the Lord before the eschatological judgment. Remember, these false prophets said, Jeremiah is the sinner, not us. Jeremiah is the fake, not us. The echo of false prophets here opens once again the window on prophetic falsehood which was rampant in the days of Jeremiah before and after the wrath of God fell upon that nation, that city, that temple, that religious community. False prophets of God and the bitter, bitter, lamentable tragedy that follows in their wake. And remember, it takes two to tango. The people of Judah and Jerusalem listened to these phonies. They sat in rapt devotion as the charlatans poured forth their phony rhetoric and deceitful words. The people sat at their feet and ate it up. And so because the people would not abandon these phonies, God gave them up to the judgment they deserved. Famine and death are terrible things. But because Judah and Jerusalem refused to walk out on the false prophets, famine and death is what they received. Follow the false messengers of God. Believe the false messengers of God, and sooner or later, judgment and death will come. 586 B.C. is proof. If you need it, if you need more, 70 A.D. will put the staccato on it. Verse 15. All who pass along the way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city of which they said, the perfection of beauty a joy to the earth? We meet the passers-by in verse 15. Again, again. In verse 12 of chapter 1, you may recall we met those who pass by. Here the poet prophet voices the same declaration as the city herself declares in chapter one, his voice imitating her voice. Two voices becoming one voice. His voice identifying with her voice. His voice revealing the fulfillment of God's voice. God's voice spoken through the prophet In Jeremiah 19, verse 8, Thus says the Lord, I shall also make this city a desolation and an object of hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all of its blows. Those who pass by the ruins of Jerusalem clap their hands. Applauding? applauding the destruction of the city with rhythmic claps of derision. And in their derision, they add to their applause hisses of scorn and contempt, indicative of their hatred for the city of God and the people of God. To complete their expression of insult, they wag and shake their heads in a bobblehead demonstration of their arrogance, their disdain, Their vaunted superiority over their opponent, much as modern-day football players do, they wag their head, a sign of disdain and arrogant pride. No, it's not sportsmanship. It's showmanship, and it's arrogant, brutal showmanship. All this jeering mockery directed at daughter Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which the psalmist called the perfection of beauty. Psalm 50, verse 2. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. Psalm 48, 2. These psalter choruses are echoed from the mouths of the mockers and taunters here in Lamentations 2.15. Jerusalem, the perfection of beauty, a joy to all the earth. What? Had the pagan mockers stolen the songs of Zion in order to insult Zion? Had the heathen taken up the Psalms of Jerusalem in order to ridicule Jerusalem as they clap their hands and hiss their tones of songs of contempt all the while wagging their heads in rhythmic derision? Now there is biting irony, isn't it? The prophet Jeremiah turning it right on his head. The Psalms of Zion being sung of the haters of Zion. A diabolical anti-chorus. This Jerusalem ruined, raised, reduced to rubble. This Jerusalem, the perfection of beauty. This scorched Burned, smashed, and trashed Jerusalem, a joy to all the earth? Surely a better than this earthly Jerusalem is beauteous in prospect, lovely in spatial adornment, wondrous in elevation, gloriously situated on the heights of heaven's everlasting hills. And there are no heathen psalter hymnals in that place. Truly that Jerusalem, Jerusalem above, is the locus of psalms and hymns of joy, eternal joy acquired by those from all the earth who love her dwelling place who sing the songs of the Lamb and his bride in the ivory palaces of a city without end, in the presence of joy without end, before the face of the triune God, where grace and mercy and love never end, and the songs of grace and mercy and love never cease. Never. And it doesn't matter whether you can't sing a note here. You will sing in exaltation there. Verse 16. All your enemies have opened their mouths wide against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day for which we waited. We have reached it. We have seen it. Now, we have emphasized that these 22-verse chapters follow the acrostic pattern of the 22-consonant Hebrew alphabet. We pointed out before in the second chapter that verses 16 and 17 reverse two letters in the usual alphabetical order of that Hebrew alphabet. The letter Pe is before the letter Ion. And reverses the normal alphabetical order of Ian before Pay in chapter two, verses 16 and 17. I want to make a suggestion about this apparent anachronism when we explain verse 17. But for the present, we notice once again that the Ian and Pay are reversed here in chapter two, in verse 16 and 17. Well then, all your enemies. Who are these people? All the enemies of Judah and Jerusalem. Keep your finger there in Lamentations 2 and turn to the next book of the Bible, Ezekiel chapter 25. And when did Ezekiel live? Anyone? During the time of? During the time of... <laughs> True. True. <laughs> he is a contemporary of Jeremiah. He is a contemporary of the fall of Jerusalem. In fact, he predicts it as does Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and so on. So, uh, he does live into the exilic period, that is true. <clears throat> he's, he's le- he lives longer than Jeremiah does, but nonetheless, he is a contemporary of the crisis that comes upon the city. In fact, he has a number of symbolic acts which demonstrate the fall of Jerusalem. Alright, now in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel chapter 25, if you have that chapter before you, you will notice that the prophet Ezekiel gives a list of those who have set their face against Jerusalem and Judah. And in verse 2, he names the Ammonites. Then if you scan down in verse 8, he names the Moabites. He repeats that designation of the Moabites in verse 11. Then in chapter 12, he designates the Edomites. And in verse verse 15, rather, he designates the Philistines. All right, now if you notice the geography there, he's gone from east to west. He's gone from the uh, eastern countries or nations, the Ammonites, Moabites, and Edomites, to the western nation bordering Israel, namely the Philistines. But there's one other nation that's involved, and that's the nation that's north of the Philistines in, uh, in ancient geography. What nation would be north of the Philistines also on the coast of uh, Palestine? Tyre. And what nation is Tyre and Zidon, its queen, uh, the two queen cities? What are, uh, nation is they, are they a part of? Phoenicians. The Phoenicians, correct. And that you will find in chapter 28, verses 12 and 21 of the prophet Ezekiel. Alright, so we have an idea of some of the enemies of Jerusalem and Judah, namely nations that were proximate, that is nearby, west, uh, east, west, and north. Jeremiah has his own list. I'm not going to turn to that, uh, take the time to read through that, but it's in chapter 25 of Jeremiah's prophecy, beginning with verse 20 to 26, and he even extends that range of the enemies to the Elamites and the Medes. These are the choristers of the ironic hymn of contempt for beautiful daughter of Jerusalem. The full irony of their clapping, hissing Head-wagging liturgy is completed in this verse. They gnash their teeth. They gnash their teeth, spitting out their derisive taunts. The characterization of the enemy nations is portrayed by direct discourse. They add their voices to the poetic drama. We hear them speak. They speak in verse 15 and they speak again in verse 16. And in that speech we see no pity. In that speech we see only the gloating jeers and triumphant braggadocio which spews from their mouth and animates their cocky demeanor. These evil hearts speak their demissive contempt for the city of God and boast of their vaunted power which has swallowed up a nation of people whom they hated and despised. Yes, they were anti-Semitic. Bitterly anti-Semitic. How they had longed for this day. How they had longed for this day of Jerusalem's destruction. When the God of Judah appears impotent. When the temple of Judah is leveled before the troops of pagan gods. When the virgins of Judah are raped by heathen soldiers who lust to dominate, subjugate, prostitute. When the army of Judah lies butchered in the streets. When the king of Judah is humiliated with blindness and chained for exile with his princes, nobility, and officials. Indeed, as they say here, surely this is the day for which we have waited. Verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word. His word which he commanded from days of old, he has thrown down without sparing, and he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. Now I want to address the reverse alphabetical order that I mentioned in my comments on verse 16, at which we have pointed out on the outline the reversal of the I and pay in the normal Hebrew alphabetic form. Instead of the I and pay alphabetic order for verse 16 and 17, instead of the usual order, we have a pay and I and reversal. Why? Here's my suggestion. Virtually no commentator has any solution to this mystery, and I admit that it is a conundrum, but here is my suggestion. <clears throat> In verse 16, you will notice that the enemy bragged about their power, their sovereignty over fallen Jerusalem. They placed themselves first in the order of events. Their prowess, their might, their strong and mighty war engines have toppled, hated Jerusalem. But verse 17 says, the Lord decreed the destruction of Jerusalem. It was his sovereign purpose predestined from the foundation of the world to visit wicked Judah and Jerusalem with the fruits of their evil deeds. The reversal of the alphabetical order underscores the irony of the bragging enemies, as if it was their mighty sovereign power. Ironic, because they are only instruments or means in the sovereign purpose and decree of God. They are instrumental means to God's sovereign ends. So they put themselves first, pay before iron. In fact, the sovereign Lord is first, iron before pay, as a proper alphabetical sequence would attest. By reversing the consonants, the poet-prophet Jeremiah highlights, even directing his own subtle scorn. The poet-prophet highlights the ironic absurdity of the enemy pride before the absolute sovereign purpose and decree of God. It should be the other way around. But he arrests us as readers of that proper reversal alphabetically. God's sovereign purpose first, man's instrumental actions in accomplishment of that purpose second. Reversing the order here makes us think about the matter in its entirety. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. He breaks the pattern in order to force the theological issue upon our attention. So my suggestion for the mystery of the reverse alphabetical word: God had announced this purpose, this purpose of his before through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah. The whole land shall be a desolation. I have purposed, same Hebrew word as here in 2.17, I have purposed and I will not change my mind nor will I turn from it. Jeremiah 4:27 and 28. Even from days of old, the Lord purposed the destruction of Jerusalem as he purposed to permit the children of Israel and Judah to sin, as he purposed to hold them accountable for their willful sins and the wages thereof. From the days of Moses, more than 800 years before, thus prophesied the Lord. If you do not obey me, I will lay waste your cities, and I will make the land desolate, and I will scatter you among the nations. Leviticus 26, 27, 31 to 33. And from Moses' farewell warning on the plains of Moab, the Lord will bring you and your king to a nation which you have not known, and you shall become a horror and a taunt among all the people. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar and it shall besiege you in all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down. Deuteronomy 28 verses 36 and 37, 49 and 52. The purpose and the prophecy of the Lord does surely come to pass. For he doth foreordain whatsoever comes to pass including the instrumental means by which it cometh to pass. And we will stop there this evening and resume with verse 18 next time and continue with the outline and some of chapter 3, Lord willing, next week. Any questions or comments that you may have? Scott? have look at the other reversal of the other, you, have, have you looked at that to see if there's something similar like that going on? Um, I'm not done thinking about what happens in chapter four yet. So, uh, be patient, child. As you see, this is my suggestion. You know, I'm 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 looking for a theological answer to a grammatical or alphabetical irony. Yes, Nancy. Do you think it's simply a display of a man exalting himself above God? Amen. The enemies are exalting themselves above God. That in verse 16. Yes, they are doing that. So he draws attention to that as something that they hiss and spit in the face of the God of Judah. As if they are more powerful than he. This God who couldn't deliver this city and this nation is impotent. He's powerless. We are the power brokers. So in reversing it. Okay, putting them first instead of God. He's drawing attention to what should be the normal pattern, the normal alphabetical pattern. It's ironic even in Jeremiah doing it, but he's, he's doing it for a theological purpose. That's my that's my theory. Pete? The passing by, can't we all attribute that also in fulfillment to Christ? Passing by, and all kinds of claims on I mean, the cross. Yes, yes. This, this will repeat itself at the cross. They will taunt and mock and jeer and derisively wag their heads at him. Yes, David. <clears throat> Just a very, very grim picture. These people, the remnant uh, that stays in Jerusalem camp, uh, they really don't have any hope. And they're debilitated from its... Experiencing God's love, how infinitely worse will it be for the unbeliever, who for all eternity will never, ever be able to experience God's love, never have hope. Dreadful prospect, even so, the gospel cries out to turn from that and experience the love of God for eternity. Let's close with prayer. We do bless you for the gifts of your servant, Jeremiah, Lord, and we sorrow with him as we are drawn into the drama of the narrative poem which he has constructed. We realize that your wrath and just righteousness are fearful indeed. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the consuming Lord God. Lord, you have given us the grace of your Son, great Jeremiah's greater prophet. You have given us the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom Jeremiah himself was drawn in love, expecting a deliverer and a redeemer. You have drawn us unto yourself through your Son, By your spirit, he who took death and sorrow and lamentation and mocking and jeers and taunts and agony and the hatred of a people upon himself. All this for our salvation. All this we may behold his blessed face in glory forever and ever. O Lord Jeremiah drives us to the Lord Jesus. Jesus draws upon Jeremiah's art and upon the story that is here. Give us eyes to see, hearts to believe, minds to be amazed, and lives to be changed. Through Christ Jesus our Lord, we pray. Amen.